Welcome to Boston Faith and Justice's Let's Talk Faith and Justice podcast. This is episode, we think, 18. We're not positive people, but it's going to be a great episode. I'm really excited for everyone to hear the conversation I had with Father Peter. Um, he runs an organization um, called A Faith That Does Justice, and his story is just wonderful, his faith journey, and then his passion for his ministry in Boston is just great. So I'm excited for everyone to hear that conversation. And that brought up um, for us here and I'm joined with by Ivy and Andrew, our BFJN staff, just thinking about what we've got going on at BFJN. We're so excited to have the podcast rolling along and sharing the stories of people doing really interesting um, and important work in and around Boston and around the country. And that's one piece of what we do, but we've got a lot of other things going on. So we thought we'd take this opportunity, not just to talk generally about what we have going on, but to let Andrew share about what he's been doing because if you've been following us, you know that Andrew joined our staff July, August. I don't know, Andrew, when was it? Um, I think, yeah, July. Yeah, it was a it was a long onboarding process um, through no fault of Andrew's. So we're really excited to have him. So he's going to talk about kind of his work and what he's doing here. And then we're just going to share kind of what we've got going on. So we're really thankful for the BFJN community, the way you guys support us and engage with our work. And um, yeah, so the podcast is one thing. And um, we also just wrapped up a book club, which we've talked about a lot, um, talking about climate change, which is our focus area. And Ivy and Andrew have been participating in that book club as well. And um, Ivy, what are your what are you thinking about book clubs and the way we're we're doing that work? And oh, yeah, the ongoing with the climate change group. Yeah, I really have enjoyed our book clubs because it not only enhances a sense of community amongst BFJN and just knowing, you know, others that are in our network, but having the opportunity to come together with, you know, we're all maybe on different levels of engagement or knowledge on a certain topic and just being transparent, authentic about where each of us lie um, and how we can engage with the topic, also holding one another accountable um, and just being able to learn together. And I think especially for for me, and I won't speak for you, but even as you know, facilitators of the group, not having to come in of like, I'm the know-it-all, I'm the expert, um, but like we're all learning together. And I really appreciate that model. Yeah, same. I would agree. I've learned so much from the participants in the group and climate change is definitely an area I'm interested in, but not, I would, I would not call myself knowledgeable, right? I'm a learner. And so it's been a really great community to learn alongside and learn from. So, and our book was amazing and we continue to recommend it to everyone following Jesus in a warming world. And coming up on the podcast, we have um, we had a conversation with Kyle, the author, that will be coming out um, two weeks from when this one comes out. So that's exciting. And now, all right, Andrew, so share a little bit about just your story of coming on board and what you've been doing with us at BFJN and, and also how much you love it. Please talk about how much you love it. Sure, yeah. Greetings, everyone. It's nice to be on the podcast here for the first time and kind of introducing myself to the community. I was able to put a couple blogs out, kind of my journey of justice. So that's something I encourage you to, to look back on. But yeah, really excited to be on board with BFJN. Um, just a fit in so many ways for me personally, and, and so exciting to kind of bring together people to do the work of justice and to, to yeah. share, to, to explore new ideas. Like, I mean, the book club was new to me. I kind of aware of climate change, but kind of getting involved in that and me meeting great people who are doing some great work in there and not just us, but you know, like they mentioned Gary and others, just like we're part of the group who, yeah, 
really opened my eyes to different to different things. Um, but in terms of what I've been working on a lot, um, and it's been great to work with Ivy and Elizabeth, is the Mike Six Eight program building out a little bit in terms of like, hey, how are we really connecting with our audience? What do we really want people to get out of this? How do we just connect with new participants too? Um, you know, connecting to new groups. How are we organizing information so that we can really try and develop not just like a weekend experience. Our new tagline from like a six eight is hands on heart change. Um, yeah. Yes, we're putting we're putting people in, getting their hands dirty, like doing the work of justice. But then also, how do we? And this is what we've been exploring: how are we engaging with people and helping them to sustain a transformation? So not just like, hey, like oh, I had that one cool experience on that weekend with Micah, but how do I really invest more in these partner organizations, or how do I learn more about poverty, incarceration, or trafficking, and and how do I, you know, homelessness, and, and so that it doesn't become just a check the box kind of mentality, and more of like a this is something that God is really passionate about. That's really a local issue that I've seen firsthand. And I've been able to connect with the experiences of the people who are going through it. Right? Because so often that's what holds us back is that we don't see ourselves in the people who are suffering. We just see mm -hmm. them as, oh, that's like them. Mm -hmm. That's something that they are going through. That's something that their decisions that they made. And it's like, yes and no, right? It's always a mix. It's not just decisions that they made. It's like the systems that are impacted. So, but it's if we don't start by seeing ourselves in those people who are suffering, then I think it really holds us back from acting on your behalf. So that's something that we are, are working on, and, and it's really exciting to, to do. And it's an impact to me on a personal level, too. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. So appreciate your passion. I am really looking forward to all the things Andrew's bringing to our MICA program. Um, it's been a, an amazing program and we love it. And we love the participants who've come alongside us and the organizations we're working with. But Andrew's been really helpful in helping us think strategically about how to kind of accomplish some of these passions that we have about this longer term transfer, transformative change. So um, yeah, really looking forward to our upcoming MICAs. We're already starting to schedule um, in the summer and thinking about also a model that would allow us to maybe do some outside of the summer being a small organization, our capacity is sometimes what limits us. And so we're working on figuring out ways to continue to engage with that program. And as Andrew said, widen the scope of people who can participate with us. So yes, it's very exciting. Um, yeah. And it made me think, and I'm not sure why it was transitioning for me, as you were talking about um, trying to see ourselves in the people that we're ministering to and with in a way that we, we other people, um, a, a blog that I'm, that's coming out today talks about kind of living simply. And, and through that, somehow I transitioned and I swear it makes sense in the blog, but like talking about formation and the ways in which we're formed, um, and, um, how important that is like, and the dictionary definition of like sh being shaped by. And so I think Micah is definitely one of our formative formation programs that we're really trying to figure out how we can, teach and serve in ways that don't just, like you said, impact our weekend, but impact the way in which we are sh continually shaped more and more into the image of Jesus in our world. So, yeah. So we're very excited that Andrew is here um, and helping us do all that. And then thinking about the other programs so transitioning to another one of our more on-ramp programs that you can kind of consume and learn from um, on a little bit of an easier scale in your own time is our financial literacy program. So 
I was thinking about that as well as we were talking and ways in which we can share that with more participants. That's often what we're we're looking to figure out how to do. We have these really great resources we're developing really thoughtfully and prayerfully. Um, but how do we how do we get them out to people? So financial literacy is available on our website and it kind of walks us through how can we um, follow Jesus with our money is the main thing we're trying to talk about how to do. And in the midst of that, we talk about really tangible things like what does it look like to get out of debt? What are some practical ways we can do that? And then talking alongside of that, like what is what is my enough? How do we how do we live into our enough as opposed to buying into the the cultural norm of consumerism and acquisitiveness? So. Um, yeah, that's a great resource that's that's on our website. And we're just continually looking for ways maybe to update that, have a, it's it's generosity, um, foundations of generosity is what we've decided to call it because this financial literacy is like a 101 in that. And, and how can we continue to draw people deeper into that journey of understanding how we use our resources in a way that reflects the love of God? Yeah. And just to jump in for those that may be listening for the first time or are unfamiliar, our website is www.bostonfaithjustice.org. And you click on the learn page and then you will find the Generous Living Foundations curriculum that Elizabeth just mentioned. Thank you. Always good to do the practical way. Sometimes I forget about the practical aspect. So appreciate that. Yeah. And our website's great too. Like it has a lot of really great resources on it, ways to connect with us, but also just things that can get you on your learning journey, um, kind of from your, in your, at your own pace. And then hopefully we, our vision is that you'll eventually want to plug in with us in some of these programs where you can enter into a community of people who are also interested in doing this work and kind of giving up their time and their space. So yeah, so that's that's what we've got going on right now at BFJN. I don't know, did we did we miss anything? I mean, I'm sure there's other odds and ends going on, but yeah, I mean, just one thing I wanted to mention at BFJN is not so much for our um, network or those that are engaged in the program, you know, in our programs, but for us at BFJN having the opportunity to come together with our board and have a retreat in the upcoming weeks, I'm really excited about. Um, we've recently received a grant from Duke Divinity that will help us to strengthen our, you know, community both internally and externally. And so really thankful for the resources that we have been blessed with to be able to do the work that we do. Um, but just coming together, I share all the time. I love community. And so coming together for this, you know, next, next weekend, um, will be something that I'm very much looking forward to. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Me too. Yeah. That's a little behind the curtain, the way in which like organizationally for us to continue to do the work, to be sustained in it, it's important for us to have a community and our board um, is a big part of that. And then to vision cast together, like what does it look like for BFJN to continue to lean into our mission and vision in 2024, 2025, you know, God willing on and on and on. All right. So that's a little bit of what BFJN has going on. And now definitely keep listening for my conversation with um, Father Peter um, to learn about the Ministry of a Faith That Does Justice. There's some really practical ways you can plug in with what they're doing and some ways to learn about their ministry too. So thank you. Okay, so I'm really excited to be here right now talking to Peter, um, who runs an organization whose name is very similar to ours. Um, it's a faith that does justice. Um, and we, as you know, hopefully if you're listening to the podcast, is Boston Faith and Justice. So um, I became aware of Peter's work as soon as it started, I think, just because 
it yeah. connected so much with what we do. And I was just really impressed by the the way they rolled out their mission and have attended some of their events. And I just, I'm really thankful that that you guys are doing the work you're doing here. And so I'm also really excited to just share your story with um, our podcast community. So I'd love for you to start out, just introduce yourself. And um, if you could tell us a little bit about your story that brought you to where you are today. Sure. Well, thank you very much. And let me thank you for inviting me on this uh, podcast. It's a great opportunity for me to meet or to eventually meet some of your own followers and uh, delighted to be here. So yeah, to, as best I can answer, you know, you're asking me really, you know, how does it all begin? Uh, I don't know what people know. Some people would know something of me. Some people know nothing. So I'll kind of assume not too much. I, I am a, a a pediatric endocrinologist by training, and I am also a Jesuit priest. And they happened in that order. Uh, I uh, really was in my formation as a uh, physician, uh, did my uh, residency and, and uh, fellowship. And then I wound up at the National Institutes of Health doing medical research for five years. And it was in my fifth year that I just had this feeling that my life had been fairly gifted by a, a lot of opportunity, and I, I it was set up to do fairly well. But I had this uh, this great sensation of that two-thirds of the world would never have the opportunities that I had. And I was very curious to know who these people were. Who were these two-thirds of the world? And long story short is I left the NIH and I went to El Salvador in the late 80s, which was a time of the civil war in Central America, both in Salvador and Guatemala. And I went right around the time, I, some people would remember in 1989, six Jesuits and their two female co-workers were murdered by the government. And I was there right around that time. So it was a very powerful experience. And for me, quite frankly, very transformative. And what came of it is, I was not a Jesuit at the time. I was a physician providing health care. But over a couple of years or maybe a few more than a couple, I really discerned this idea that I wanted to really dedicate my life to um, really the people who would not have the opportunities in life that I had had. Mm -hmm. And I did enter the Society of Jesus because of the example I saw in El Salvador, the six Jesuits there, as well as other people, quite frankly, really dedicated their lives to people who had nothing. And they demanded justice so that all people could live with dignity and human rights. And they were killed for doing so as were many, many other people, including Oscar Romero, the archbishop of that country, many union workers, many teachers, many leaders. They basically tried to wipe out the leadership of the opposition. Mm. So I did enter the Jesuits because of the example down there. And this organization really reflects my attempt to offer something of the experience I had in El Salvador in a first world setting. Now, honestly, you can't do it because I was in a third world setting and this is a first world setting. But we try to bridge the gap so that our premise is, is that there are many, many people uh, like us, probably of people with education who are of goodwill, but they don't live next to people who are poor. They don't have access to the issues that many poor people have. <laughs> so our program has two prongs. One is we try to educate uh, raise consciousness among people like ourselves uh, about social issues that affect vulnerable people in Boston and beyond. And many of these issues are similar throughout the country and even the world. Immigration, racism, sexism, uh, housing, different issues that people are struggling with right here in Boston and beyond. Uh, we do that through holding meetings, 
We now call them fireside chats where we interview people from different organizations about an issue. We just had one on uh, homelessness, immigration, and poverty. The Mm -hmm. confluence of these things hitting the same people, people who are poor, often people of color, (laughs) who um, bear the brunt of these kinds of crises. And we had a very good response. So that's one way we do it. Another way we do it is we have, a, a to, for subscribers, we have an email publication that goes out twice a week. Uh, one is about social justice, for the most part, uh, trying to help people understand issues of social justice and the human rights and human dignity of all people, uh, regardless of faith, religion, uh, color of one's skin, sexual orientation. We are an interfaith organization. I am a Jesuit Catholic priest. But our organization is not proselytizing. We welcome all comers uh, to really live their faith, be it Jew, Christian, Muslim, or something else, in action on behalf of people in need. So that's one prong. The other prong that we have is really trying to reach out directly to people in need. And we do it through several ways. One is we run an ESOL program, English for Speakers of Other Languages. And uh, when I came to Boston seven years ago, <laughs> I met uh, Elizabeth uh, during that time, and uh, I asked many people, what would you do if you wanted to reach out and help people? And while there were some different responses, the overwhelming response was ESOL, that there's tremendous need. Uh, and to give you an example, seven years later, we run an ESOL program. There are many ESOL programs in Boston, and the need has not been met. We have a waiting list of 100 people. There are other organizations in similar uh, places where there's tremendous influx of people who don't speak English. And intuitively, but it has also been proven that if you speak English, you earn more in the workplace than you do if you don't. And that has ramifications for newly arrived people who have families and trying to uh, bridge the gap between where they came from and this society, which does take money to be able to survive. So that's that's one major. Uh, it's free to the public, free to the people who want to take it. We raise money to run it, and uh, it's been very successful, and we're very proud of it. Uh, another way we do this is from my time in El Salvador, I speak Spanish, and we have tried to reach out. <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> to uh, recently arrived Spanish-speaking people who don't speak English, and what we have found, as others as well have found. Many of these people are very isolated. They live by themselves. They live in very limited social communication with people. There just aren't that many people available to them. Some are undocumented, which makes it very difficult and very makes them very suspicious of where they are, who's around them, and what is the liability for themselves. So we run a um, a Spanish service as well as a meal following it every Saturday. And we welcome all Spanish speakers to come in. We have a beautiful community that has formed of pretty, people pretty similar to one another in that they arrive from many different countries. We probably have 20 different Latin American countries. And uh, what has happened is they have formed a community. And many of them will say, you know, I live alone. I don't speak English. I don't have a community. But when I come here and there are 25 other people who speak my language, it's the highlight of my week. So it's really a, you know, a beautiful thing to see unfold. A third initiative that we're starting, we hope by the end of the year, is what we call grab and go. It would basically be a food outreach to people in the neighborhood. We have uh, set up some of our operation at Emmanuel Church, which is 15 Newberry Street. And in that area of town, as well as other areas, 
there are a lot of homeless people uh, from uh, on the Boston Common Public Gardens and in that area itself. So we're hoping to be able to provide a need for food for some of these people. We will start once a week doing this. And uh, our, our organization is all volunteer. We welcome people to join us, to walk in solidarity with us. We need volunteers to make things go. And we are very grateful for those who do join with us. And maybe at the end, I can tell you how you can do that. But how's yeah. that for a start? Okay. That, that is such a great start. I mean, you touched on all the things. I'm scribbling notes furiously over here because there were some things I knew about what you guys are doing, but some things are new to me as well. So I'm, I'm really curious to kind of dive into a little bit of those. I really like what you were saying about this belief that there are people of goodwill who essentially want to engage and they just need a way because they're not because right. their privilege sort of separates them. I, I just think that's such a great thing to name, right? Like that yeah. is that separation, acknowledging the privilege, but like, yeah, people want to do good if they can. Yeah. No, I think most people out there are people of goodwill. They want to do well and uh, they don't have access or they don't know how to find access. And I think we're not the only ones, but I think what we're trying to do is invite them in. And part of our outreach with the ESOL, with the grab and go, with the Spanish mass, you know, we we welcome volunteers to help us in that. And part of in doing that is that, yes, you provide service to people in need. But what you also find is you, you begin to come to know who these people are, what the struggles are for people who arrive here in this country. And it's not an easy road. Many come with the idea that the roads are paved with gold and they get here and they realize that it is a struggle financially to make life go in this country. So. Yeah. And again, I think that that immigration piece that you you guys are inter interacting with is just it's a hard one for people to wrap their minds around without, you know, what you're saying. You're providing some of this direct access and community with people who are this is their lived experience. Yeah. Um, immigration can become this esoteric policy right. with, without this interaction with people. So I think that's that's yeah. great. Uh, let me just say this one thing. You know, we just held a conference on immigration and poverty and homelessness. And uh, it, it was made very clear that historically in this country, the immigrant population is necessary for, for major cities to survive. They mm -hmm. take jobs that most people don't want. And without them, cities tend to suffer. So they serve a real purpose. And this idea that somehow they're coming in and they're not doing anything is, is, a, is a complete falsehood. Most of these people are very eager to assimilate into society as best they can. Yeah, absolutely. And I, that's, I was going to ask about the, that um, event that you held. I was very sorry to have to miss it. I was out of town um, because historically you guys always have really compelling speakers with, with such information and like experience that I just have really appreciated that historically, but I think immigration. And you, so you talked about in that your most recent event, you examined the confluence of, of poverty, immigration, and homelessness Were those. Yes. The three? Okay. Um, and can you say just a little more about maybe what you've learned in your experience or through different people you're interacting with, like what that looks like and also like ways in which people can maybe understand more or interact with it in a way that deepens their own experience? Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the panelists we have, uh, you know, they they run larger organizations. We had a woman who ran an operation. She was Haitian and a lot of Haitians, a lot of Haitian uh, immigrants here, Latin American, mm -hmm. uh, Portuguese, Brazilian. Um, uh, so I think what they discover when they get here is that uh, language is a barrier, number one. That's a big thing. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, that 
you know, job security, job uh, financial reimbursement. Uh, people do much better if they can speak English. I think housing is a problem. You know, Boston has become, there is no more space in Boston. Everything is going straight up. And the housing market is going up and up and up. And it really is pushing out a lot of people with lower incomes uh, to be able to find housing and to be able to live here. So I think, you know, I would just leave with the idea that these are tough, tough lives. And I think uh, as an organization, you know, we try to reach out as best we can with our outreach to the Spanish speaking people. Uh, but we certainly would welcome anyone coming in to help us with another language skill that could help uh, move that along in other ways. <clears throat> yeah. So coming back to that, the language barrier, which which you named as, as sort of when you first came, <laughs> and I think it just, you came with some curiosity about like what the needs were in the city. And I just really appreciate the way you narrated that journey. Like this was the need that you saw. And it yeah. was like, and so that became what you did. And I just think that's such a beautiful way to situate your organization. Like, as opposed to coming in, like, here's what we want to do. Yeah. Um, and, and I think as you talk through it and it's not, I, I'm sure it's something people know once you start talking about it, but I don't think it's the first thing you would name when you're thinking about outreach and, and needs of vulnerable communities. And it's just so apparent as you, as you narrate it. So in these, um, English as a second language classes that you do, um, can you talk a little bit about like the genesis of creating that program and the yeah. difference that it's making and the needs that the program has currently? Sure. Yeah. You know, in our first year, we started very small. And then by the second year, I had uh, we, we I had the opportunity to uh, talk with the CEO at uh, uh, Jewish Vocational Service, which uh, is a tremendous uh organization in Boston. It's uh, in different parts of the country. Originally founded to really help the Jewish immigrants coming in, perhaps the turn of last century or after the wars. Mm -hmm. um, and now they really reach out to recently arrived people of any denomination. They're very generous and uh, they run a top-notch uh, ESOL program in that they uh, offer different levels. They can take beginners, they can take intermediate people along. But one key thing they do is that they have a jobs training program. When they can get someone's English skills up to a certain level, they will enter them in for free into a job training situation, which would entitle them to get jobs that where they earn more money than they currently are. So we heard about them. I went down and talked with them and I was very impressed. Uh, you know, we have partnered with them. We run three classes, uh, that And what they provide for us, we pay our way for this, but what they do is they screen our patients, meaning that they do an intake and, and they determine the level of competency in English and yeah. place them, you know, beginner, advanced beginner, intermediate, etc. And then they provide us with materials. They have worked out a whole program and that they provide the materials to us. We have our teachers yeah. and we have an assistant in the class that the teachers, which is a volunteer. And you only have to speak English for that. The idea is, you know, if we generally we start with 20 people in a class, we run three classes at the same time. They meet twice a week for two hours a week, 15 weeks, and we run three sessions. So 45 weeks of the year. And um, we start with about 20 people in each class. That's about what we can handle. And then what happens over time is this tremendous attrition. The, it goes from 20 down to around 10, and that's not unique to us. All the programs find that. And the reason is, is that many of the people in these programs uh, uh, work odd hours. And, <laughs> for example, stereotypically, a lot of the Latina women are cleaning homes. 
and they mm-hmm. get called one evening to clean a house and they miss the class. But we have what we call uh, volunteers who speak the language of the of the person. And if someone misses two classes, they'll call them up and just find out, you know, what's going on. And they'll say, well, you know, my daughter's been sick or I've been having to work. And what they do is just encourage them. They said, yes, we understand, but please come back because we want to try to keep you in this flow of continuing to learn little by little. All programs have experienced this in Boston. It's just the reality of it that the, the people who take these programs, these lives are tough. And the economic circumstances really demand that they... uh uh, they're there and they're not there depending upon finances. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a hard reality because like you said, it's like this class is, is a way that can help um, move people forward in terms of their economic choices. But yeah. because of the precarious economic situation they're in, it's difficult to get to that, which I think, yeah, can is resonate resonates with a lot of experiences of vulnerable communities, right. In different, really? different aspects. Yeah. Um, so you so you offer these these classes, um, and then you mentioned um, the the Spanish speaking the meal that you do. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what it came about was that I, I was offered an opportunity to uh, to offer a Catholic mass at a church in town, and uh, the numbers uh, during COVID the numbers dropped down, and the uh, church decided to discontinue the Spanish mass. <laughs> Uh, because of the numbers. But I just, it happened to me. I just said, there were people, there were, there were 20 people showing up. And I just said, would you people like to continue this? And the answer was yes. So mm-hmm. what we did was we just found a place now where we could hold it. And the irony is you have a Catholic priest functioning in an Episcopalian church that holds also a rabbi at the same time. So it's quite an ecumenical operation down there and very welcoming, very inclusive of everyone. I, I'm really very impressed with them. So we hold this mass every Saturday at 4 p.m. If you know anyone speaking Spanish, they are most welcome to join us. It's at Emanuel Church, 15 Newberry Street. And uh, following the mass, we have a potluck dinner. People bring food in. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that they share the meal and they talk. And it provides a real sense of community. And it's been going now for over a year. So we started uh, uh, a year ago in September. So we're now about 13, 14 months into it. And it's... Uh, it's just really the people who come love it. So it's really a great opportunity. Yeah. Well, that's tremendous. And then you indicated a, a newer ministry that you're looking to do at <laughs> the grab and go, which would also be out of Emmanuel Church, which I agree. I've I've done things at Emmanuel and it's such a unique and wonderful space. It um, really is. Yeah. They deserve um, kudos. Yeah. So what would that grab and go look like? It, yeah. Well, you know, as you probably know, then Emmanuel Church runs uh, meals, I think, at least three or four days a week during the day. Uh, And um, what we propose to do, uh, partly because of the timing of this, that we're going to hold a a meal. It'll be prepared beforehand. It'll be a bagged, uh, whatever you want to call it, lunch or dinner. But it would be probably a sandwich, a piece of fruit and water in a bag. Mm-hmm. And then people would enter into Emmanuel Church, but the, we'd be set up right in the big foyer. They have a big foyer there as you enter. And we would be handing out the bags there. And then they would leave. You know, uh, it wouldn't be a sit-down lunch. They would take the bag and go with and They can eat it wherever they want or whenever they want. Uh, so we, we, we're aware that, you know, there's no knowledge of this at this point. We've talked around town and most people have encouraged us to try and give it a shot. Mm-hmm. And what we were told is that you know, there are a fair number of people who sleep, um, homeless who sleep at the Boston Common or on the Boston Common. 
And I think initially what we'll do is, you know, we'll offer our sandwiches during a certain time span and then probably walk through uh, the uh, Boston Common trying to give out any extra food that we have each week. So we're going to start it on Thursdays, tentatively set for 3 to 5 p.m., uh, so it'll be an evening-type venture. We believe on Thursdays we're not competing with any other meal, which is important. Uh, so we're, you know, we're hopeful. And I, a couple of organizations and any any support this you can give us too to let people know um, that all the better that the people in the area know about it and can come and get some food if they need it. Yeah, yep. That's- and we'd invite volunteers into that. Both there's two parts. One is preparation. You can volunteer to help make the sandwiches. Or you could volunteer to distribute the sandwiches, or you could do both. And the good thing about it is you can come once in your life. You can come every week, whichever you want. It's a pretty easy option, uh, you know, for flexibility that you can't make it one week. You can make it another week. There's no real commitment of, uh, you know, I have to be there for the next two months or something like that. Yeah, I really appreciate that. One, just kind of seeing a need and like, okay, we're going to we're gonna slide in and, and see if we can meet this need. But also, like you just named, like this the ways in which people can engage because everyone has, you know, different stuff going on in their lives and also different comfort levels with maybe this is new. And I, I don't know exactly. And this is like you said, kind of like what we would call like an on-ramp experience. Like it's not a ton of commitment. It's it's not a ton of buy-in, but you can experience it, help, you know, be helpful, but also maybe learn a little bit. um, That's like. Yeah. I think that's a good point you just made. You know, on the one hand, yes, we're providing food to people in need. But on the other hand, part of the reason for doing this is to invite people in so that when you you either prepare the sandwiches or hand the sandwiches out, you see the reality of who these people are. There's a lot of mental illness on the streets, and you see the desperateness of so many of these people. And, you know, as many people say, you know, there but for the grace of God go you or I. I mean, things can go wrong in life that put these people on the street and they're basically very decent human beings. So it's really an eye opener and a very humbling experience uh, to realize that there are these people in need and that we can learn quite a bit about what it means to be a human being from them. Yes. That's, that's so well said. I think that that's such a, an important thing that we can take away from, from any time we're interacting with community that's different than us in, in any way. Right. But particularly communities who have these really basic unmet needs. And, and if we're coming from a place of privilege to just understand that, yeah, that's not, they're not other. They're also made in the image of God and and they happen to have walked a different road for reasons that we, you know, probably won't understand fully if we're not fully engaged in the community, but um having opportunities to be just inter- interact with that reality as opposed yeah. to like this is a completely other thing that's totally separate from my world. Sure. So, oh, very well said yourself. <laughs> so yeah, well, I just appreciate that. So as we as we wrap up, what are the best ways for people to connect with what you're doing, to to see it, to understand it, and then maybe to to actually engage? Yeah, I mean, if you basically, I think, what why do people not volunteer? I think it's fear. You know, in the end, people are afraid to move off of their their level of comfort or the level of ordinariness of their lives. Their lives don't flow a certain way, and they're comfortable in that flow. And to make a change where you just move out of your comfort zone can be scary and uh, threatening to many people. Uh, so I think the first thing is to, you know, to, to pray for the courage, to say the grace and the courage to say, you know, I'm going to take a leap, a leap here and try something. Move off my comfort level and give something a try. It doesn't have to be forever. It can be once. But it, I think what most people will find is when you take that leap, into the darkness, 
all of a sudden there's tremendous light. There's illumination as to what it means to be a human being and what these people can open to ourselves. So practically speaking, uh, you know, we would invite anyone who would like to volunteer with us. Uh, we realize there's other opportunities around town, but we are entirely a volunteer organization and you would be most welcome. If I am allowed, I can tell you the best way to get a hold of us is to, uh, to look at our webpage and that's, uh, www. Faith-justice.org. Let me say it one more time, www.faith-justice.org. On the home page at the bottom, you'll see a little grid. If you fill out your name and uh, email address uh, and say you want to volunteer, someone will contact you. And our idea with that is that we try to listen to a little bit about what might you be interested in mm. and see how that matches our needs and see if we can make a match for you that you might be most comfortable in. But I really would encourage all people, you know, many of us who are probably listening to this uh, podcast live somewhat privileged lives. And some of that really reflects, by education, we are separated out from most of this world. Our educations have taught us how to think, how to solve problems. Uh, oftentimes they have provided uh, opportunities and uh, job opportunities that make us somewhat comfortable. And there's a, two, as I said earlier on, there's two thirds of this world that don't have these opportunities. And I think reaching out to them is a way of enriching our own lives. And I'd encourage everybody to do so. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's so great. Thank you. And we will, we'll share out your website too oh. when we share the podcast. So if you, if you didn't catch it, you don't need to rewind. You can just probably look below where you saw this on social media and we'll, we'll share your website. I think that's such a great philosophy around volunteering right to um to try to listen to volunteers and and maybe where they're gifted and and passionate and plug them in that's awesome yeah. and i really appreciate your framing i wrote down when you started your story it was like your awareness of privilege combined with curiosity led to some discernment for you and and then you just use the word illumination i just feel like um that was such a great journey that i mean obviously you gave us the overview. We didn't get all the details, but I, it's such a wonderful example of just being open and listening um, to where you might be moving, what where your journey might take you and maybe different than you originally intended. So exactly. Yeah. You know, I think what you're saying to summarize another way is, you know, the key to discernment is to see, to judge and to act and to just uh, if we can look at that, we see reality as it really is, not as everyone tells it is. And then to judge it, to judge it as the with the injustice that exists and then to act out of compassion for people in need. So you said it very well. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was such a great conversation and I'm just looking forward to engaging our community in your work and, you know, seeing, seeing the ways in which people can come alongside and, and hopefully be able to experience some of what you're doing. So, okay. Well, let me thank your audience, your followers and Elizabeth, let me thank you too for having me. I really appreciate it and uh, look forward hopefully to hearing from someone. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Thank you.